Today, we are bringing back a frequent guest to the Time for Teachership blog and podcast, Dr. Cherie Bridges-Patrick. If you've listened to a previous episode, you already know all about her, but a quick summary, she is the founder of Paradox Cross-Cultural Consulting Training and Empowerment, LLC. She is a racial justice consultant, leadership coach, and psychotherapist. She works with social workers, counseling professionals, educators, and organizational leaders, and she uses a trauma-focused lens in her work to build leadership capacity for racial justice. Sheree holds a PhD in leadership and change, and her research is in racism, denial, and discourse, and racial justice and social work and the helping professions like education. I can't wait for you to hear this episode of a conversation between Sheree and I diving into the organizational nature of how we create a culture in our schools for fostering racial justice. I'm Lindsay Lyons, and I love helping school communities envision bold possibilities, take brave action to make those dreams a reality, and sustain an inclusive, anti-racist culture where all students thrive. I'm a former teacher leader turned instructional coach, educational consultant, and leadership scholar. If you're a leader in the education world, whether you're a principal, superintendent, instructional coach, or a classroom teacher excited about school-wide change like I was, you are a leader. And if you enjoy nerding out about the latest educational books and podcasts, if you're committed to a lifelong journey of learning and growth and being the best version of yourself, you're going to love the Time for Teachership podcast. Let's dive in. Welcome back, Dr. Bridges Patrick, to an episode of Time for Teachership. We were together in a previous episode talking about the primacy of discourse, the need for building the muscle for personal and interpersonal discourse capacities. You talked to us about readiness and willingness, vulnerability, adaptability, and the importance of a liberating dialogic environment. For those of you who haven't listened to that episode, please go back and listen to that one. That one is absolutely amazing. I just want to introduce you to Dr. Sheree Bridges-Patrick. If you haven't already heard that episode and you are going to dive right into this one, uh, Dr. Bridges-Patrick is a racism denial and discourse scholar, and she is here to talk to us about how we identify and dismantle systemic racism in educational systems. And so today's episode is more focused on that organizational level. We previously talked about the personal and the interpersonal. Today, we're going to that organizational level. So I'll actually hand it over to Cherie to start us off with the first question. All right, Lindsay, uh, this is exciting for me because I get to ask you some questions in, in this. Uh, and so my first question for you, Lindsay, is at the organizational level, how can schools build capacity for generative dialogue and continuous learning more broadly? Yeah, so I think one of the things that I love about our working together is really putting adaptive leadership at the core of all that we do. And when we think about that capacity building, that is really central to really systematizing a lot of things, systematizing the process of diagnosis, as we talked about, really identifying so that we can dismantle so many of the problems that are 
you know, general across the system educationally, nationally, globally, but also very particular to the individual schools that we're talking about. And so my first kind of thought whenever I hear this, whenever I think about organizational capacity building is really to set up structures that enable us to really sustain these conversations that we talked about in our last episode that bring in diverse perspectives of different stakeholder groups and truly share in the the leadership and the decision making of an organization so we can get a better understanding of the problems and challenges we encounter as well as what solutions and policies would actually address those challenges in an equitable manner. What do you think, Sherry? So I, I would, can I just add to that? Um, because I, I think we have to, because we're a society with attention challenges and short-term thinking, like, you know, we want things done quickly. I want to just touch on that process that you just talked about, the setting up the structures to sustain, right? To be able to, um, to, to start shifting mindsets and when mindsets are sets are shifted, then, you know, we can get into the policy work and, you know, and, and, and how we change that. Because it all starts with, you know, with us as individuals and, you know, um, but to, to just talk to um, briefly the, um, the, the length of time that it takes, right? Um, and, and so I say that and I hesitate as I hear myself say this, like, there's no, like, there, because this has been going on for so long, because it is entrenched, because we are entrenched in this, um, we, there has to be some time. And I know that there are some things that need immediate change. Um, and for those people who think they can make that happen quickly, great. But I think we need to understand that this process takes time, the, time, the, the, the process of, of shifting mindsets, of changing policy. Right? Just think of our, of our political system and all the steps that need to happen to make laws change right so if you go into an organization it's similar uh, that you've got you know you've got your policies and practices so it takes time but in that time though you're always practicing you're always engaging because of the power of discourse because of its ubiquity as a social practice that is in every aspect of our lives Excellent points. I absolutely love love those contributions because I I particularly love that you're talking about the time piece and how it kind of hits you as you say it because we have seen people on the one hand rush to action without the process that needs to be shared and and um, the dialogue that needs to happen among key stakeholders that represent different stakeholder groups. So that rush to action and kind of skipping over the democratic process is problematic. Um, but then we also need to recognize that you know we need to to sit in some things with the balance of the urgent call to action, right? So like we need to take action because like you said, it's been happening for so long. We need to address it. We can't wait a, a long time to do that, but we also need to make sure the way that we're addressing it um, really speaks to our priorities as well. Yes, and, it, and for me, it goes back to just that, um, that, that primacy of discourse and the need to learn how to engage in generative dialogue, right? If we can't talk about the issue, right? If we can't talk about race um, 
and 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 like you said, sit in some stuff, <laughs> um, sit in that discomfort and navigate through it, and you know, and build the capacity to do it. How are we going to solve something that we cannot talk about that then we cannot see because we're not talking about it? It's like this elephant in the room uh, that is always there. So we have to, you know, be be brave enough and bold enough to see the elephant, and then to you know, <laughs> to, to to figure out how we don't how we don't do this. So then, Lindsay, that takes me to um, another question. Can you talk a little bit about shared leadership? Like, what is shared leadership? And what does this approach come from? Where does this approach come from? Absolutely. So I love shared leadership. I think that's my answer to pretty much everything. Um, but I, I will talk a little bit about the powerful women who have actually inspired and held up um, and practice shared leadership through history. I think it's really important to acknowledge that because when I was first researching shared leadership or when I was first exposed to it, um, in our leadership program, we had this little handbook of leadership theory. And it's interesting because it was a man that was credited for this idea of shared leadership. Um, when in fact, if we go back further, we will see that that is not necessarily the case. So it actually came up um, in the early 20th century, 1924, Mary Parker Follett wrote about um, shared leadership and the idea of power with versus power over. And so this idea of, she says, first, by pooling power, we are not giving it up. And secondly, the power produced by relationship is a qualitative, not a quantitative thing. She says that this is a, quote, freeing for both sides and an increased total power or increased capacity in the world, end quote. And I think that really speaks a lot to the rooting of intersectional feminism first, kind of in this approach. Um, when we look at a few decades later, we see Ella Baker, uh, a racial justice activist and community organizer who really prioritized developing the leadership of others as opposed to positioning herself as the leader of a movement. It's that selflessness and the nature of building capacity for really young people, students that she was working with, I think is probably why a lot of folks don't know her name as much of a lot of male leaders that we may point to. Um, and, and she is just, I think, my role model in terms of shared leadership development. We also see uh, people today, like U.S. Congresswoman Ayanna Pressley, uh, her quote, people closest to the pain should be closest to the power. Ooh, that, that to me is just like, yes, that's what, we're, that's what we're trying to do here. If we're talking about ending systemic racism and we don't have people who have been directly impacted by systemic racism that are in the school community as part of that conversation of how to end it, what are we really doing here? And so I think these are the, the powerful women that have really taught me what shared leadership is. Um, and I've tried to, to learn from them and learn from their practice around you know, how, how we move move forward. So really, when we think about it in a school setting, I look at it from a structural perspective of how are decisions made, who is at that decision-making table, um, and are there feedback loops? Because we know the decision-making table is, is small, right? It has to be kind of representative just in how things are organized and to be able to hear everyone's voices. But we need those feedback loops to be able to go back to the stakeholder groups that the representatives represent and collect that feedback, not just speak for the group without that kind of cycle of going back and getting more data. 
And so I'm interested in your perspective, Sheree, of how this idea of shared leadership really supports folks who are laboring for racial justice and, and the centrality of this idea in racial justice work. Well, um, so as I, as I was listening to you, you know, all these things are just jumping out at me. So um, I, I'm writing an article about white supremacy in social work and you know, just, just the, the dominance um, uh, and, and, and the pain and the ways that, that systemic uh, white supremacy operates is, is, um, is challenging. And, and those of us that are going to be fighting for working, laboring towards um, racial justice, um, there, there's, a, there's a part that I explore this need for like self-care um, and, and accountability but I want to touch on that self-care part and how it ties into shared leadership. And so it may not necessarily be self-care, but it's this, this collective care maybe, right? This work is hard. This work is, uh, it's, <laughs> it is more challenging than we can ever imagine. And so um, as an individual, you can get burned out very quickly um, because, the, because the work is very hard. It requires you to take, you know, this, this real deep look at oneself. Um, and then at an organizational level, if we're, look, if we're talking about um, shared, shared leadership, I get to share some of that difficulty, some of that challenge, right? And so in that, um, I'm, I'm building relationships with other people, right? We're building intelligence. We're building new knowledge because of our experiences. Right, they can then contribute to how do we, you know, how do we actually do this? And 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 you know, we're leaning on the work of Ella Baker and the, and the other women that really brought this this concept forward. Um, but so shared leadership offers this 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 place of, of of collectivism of you know of just being together with like-minded people um, who are who are working towards the same thing. Uh, so then it it supports the need for for care. We can call. We can, you know, we can, um, you know, say to one another, "Hey, you know, what's? <laughs> I think you might need to, you know, take a little break, right?" So, so having that 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 structure allows for some time for for us to sometimes uh, step back. So then there's also this energy that that comes with that, right? I I know I have enjoyed tremendously working with you because when we get together you know, we, we have our conversations and all these ideas start to generate. So in shared leadership, you're sharing ideas and they feed off of each other and they contribute to that feedback loop, which then just, you know, continues to build. Um, and, and so ultimately, shared leadership um, in terms of racial justice is like this, the support, this, the, the, a, a leveling of the weight that is carried because of the difficulty um, that, you know, that it uh, entails. So um, I, I'd like to ask you a little bit about student voice, which is, you know, the area of, of research that you looked at. What wisdom can we pull from that body of research, Lindsay? I absolutely love the field of student voice. This is a relatively kind of emergent, I would say the last three decades kind of emergent field. And I say emergent because this has always been something historically that different groups of people have practiced. Um, but in terms of the larger um, 
I guess more, maybe more mainstream student voice, like research in journals and such like that. Um, this has become something that is more studied heavily in the last few decades. And so we get to see all of the brilliance that schools for a long time, these different pockets of individual schools have been practicing. And so one of the things that I love is Dana Mitra, who is one of the leading scholars in the field, um, she created a pyramid of student voice. And she talks about these three levels of student voice that exist in schools. And so I think this is relevant for students. I think this is relevant for teacher voice and family voice when we're talking about shared leadership and all those stakeholders. But she talks about the bottom level being probably the most common, hence the kind of pyramid shape. It's the largest, but it's also kind of the least effective in some ways. And it's, it's merely listening. So we might ask students or families or teachers to fill out a survey, but then that doesn't necess necessarily mean we do something with that survey. So we, we listen, um, but that's kind of it. And the middle level, that next level up, slightly less common, um, but more impactful is a kind of partnership among students and adults. And we're working together in concert with one another to accomplish those school goals. And at the top, the least common is really building capacity in students. And again, I think this is relevant for all stakeholders in themselves to lead. And so when we think about students as leaders, as, as folks that we can listen to and learn from as adults in the school community. I think this is really that idea of um, radical collegiality that the student voice field talks about, this idea of partnering and seeing students as equals, as people that we can help you know, them learn, and then we also learn from them. Um, and this, I think, is really at the heart of why shared leadership is so helpful and so important. Um, and, and in order to do that, we need to give students multiple opportunities to be able to take on those leadership roles, to develop the personal and interpersonal capacities that you were talking about, Sheree, in our last episode, um, to engage in racial discourse and to engage in discourse um, you know, in a generative way about all, all topics, including um, oppression of all kinds. And what's interesting about this, I think, when we're talking about sustainability, is Dana Mitra partnered um, with another scholar to actually apply turbulence theory to the pyramid. And what they realized was the lowest level of the pyramid, the just listening part, it actually increased individual and organizational turbulence because what was happening is they were just surfacing those problems. They were just identifying what was wrong, but they weren't actually doing something about it. They were just kind of bringing them all to the surface and that bubbling up of identification without the follow-up was actually destabilizing the schools. Um, whereas when we look at the top level, when students are able to kind of come out as leaders and say, we're here, we can be learned from the, the adults are listening to us. There's actually a reduction in turbulence because we're talking about organization-wide communication and that mindset shift that really helps us collectively work towards addressing those problems. And so there's actually an increased stability in terms of where schools can go when we partner with other stakeholders, which I think is really fascinating. So I'm interested in, in kind of your perspective, Cherie, when, when I'm talking about these things, I'm thinking about the conversations we've had about why racial justice initiatives have historically failed in schools um, and organizations more broadly. Uh, particularly, we talked about accountability in our last episode, and I'm just thinking about all of these kind of different pieces for sustainability and identifying and uh, dismantling some of these problems that are identified. So 
what does that actually look like in terms of what are the problems that have kind of been barriers to success for racial justice initiatives in the past? And then where do we go from there? Like what does accountability, for example, maybe look like at an organizational level? Let me try to tackle this. Um, that, that's a big, big question. Um, so then how, how, do we, how do we begin to, um, how do we do this? So um, I'm, one, I'm tying uh, this turbulence, this notion of uh, uh, concept of turbulence to, to um, Heifetz's disequilibrium, right? And so that just jumped out right at me. Um, but then, you know, you, you often talk about this, two, this, this system of diagnosis, right? Adaptive leadership says, you know, one of the, the most frequent causes of failure is that, you know, the uh, leaders fail to, to really ex examine the system that they're working within, right? And so, like you said earlier, folks just jump into the work without really exploring what's happening. Um, and so, um, a, a, a focus on diagnosis. And so that means to really drill down and, and under, you know, get it. So, you know, using that pyramid too, like using a combination of those things, but recognizing that the, the higher up you go in that, in that pyramid, you know, the, the more progress you're going to make. So I'm trying to combine those things there. Um, in, in terms of accountability, um, so this gets hard because there's all these barriers. Right, so uh, you know, the, the, there's the barriers of just racism itself and what that really means, and, and white supremacy. So you you've got you know a group of people who are in power, white people, um, uh, who who come together with these these uh, beliefs, these ideologies, these like lifelong commitments to being white because that brings um, that that brings what it brings, right? And so um, when when we're talking about accountability. There's a lot to dig into um, because the, the people who have those ideologies are typically the ones that are in the power, right? So who's going to want to give up, you know, what they see as, as power, uh, you know, as beneficial to them? So then you start asking questions like, okay, so um, how does this harm the organization? How does this harm, you know, people within the organization, right, to bring it to a relational level? And, and how do we hold people accountable to really seeing the, the universal harm of, of white supremacy, of racism, um, so that there can be this collective uh, effort towards you know, dismantling it and changing it in policies and changing it in practices. So I, understanding that why that I talked about earlier is like, uh, what's the why for the organization? Um, you know, why are they doing this? Right? A lot of times organizations are are you know engaged because everybody else is doing, and that's a lot of what I think is happening now in, in the larger um, uh, sense of, of of what we're you know we're looking at, um, and and so you know it's like okay, so everybody else is doing it. it's becoming a practice, but we really don't explore. So organizationally, we need to explore and understand what is our why, and it too needs to be grounded in you know something <laughs> that's going to help keep the organization going because there's going to be a lot of fatigue, a lot of uh, effort put into this. Um, so that's one area of accountability. Offering people um, support from, from individuals who are trained and who, who understand how racism operates, right? Not the ones that, you know, because I, I, I still, like I said earlier um, uh, in the other episode, I still don't know 
um, a lot about racism, although I've studied it, right, because it's that complex. And so, um, you know, we have to be able to uh, really educate people. Um, and, and to do that, again, it requires these mind shift chains, getting through these barriers um, so that we can do the work. So that accountability is this constant um, uh, work of breaking down the, the mental, the ideological, the social um, barriers that, that come with um, the weight of, of white supremacy. Um, can I, I, I'd like to touch on um, just a little bit about what you said about student voice, because it was interesting. You, I don't think you said it this way, but um, you, you talked about the collegiality between students and, and teachers, right? And so if I remember my days as a student, that teacher was definitely like, you know, he or she was the one in power and, and you had to, you know, you had to operate um, in a, in a, you know, a, a, a construct that was like, they were over you and you were under them. So you have this hierarchy. Um, and I think that's in my, in my continued experience, I think that's still true to some degree. So now we're shifting from, you know, a, a position uh, that doesn't necessarily um, relate to race. But if, if we take this in a, uh, in the direction of, of racial justice and your experience as a, as a, a teacher, as an educator, how how do you how do you narrow the gap between you know uh, I'm in charge the power uh, to to bring it more towards this collegiality to allow students to have this voice if I mean if we're honest we, young people are the ones doing this heavy work out there right there's all kinds of ideas and information that we can get from them so I'm curious to know and I know I'm throwing you a, a curveball because this is not what we talked about. <laughs> Could you touch on that a little bit? Absolutely. And I do think actually the as you were talking about radical collegiality, maybe not explicitly tied to race, I actually was thinking about the statistics of just who who are the teachers in what is currently known as the United States. And most of those teachers are white, many of whom are working in schools where the population of students are predominantly black and brown children. And so it's interesting that we have both that teacher authority piece, but then we also have that racial piece and the white supremacy piece that plays a role. And so when we're talking, and I know not everyone is in that position, but when we're talking about these kinds of schools where we have white teachers teaching black and brown students, I think that adds a, a level um, to that idea of radical collegiality that makes it that much more important. Um, I know we've talked about the idea of um, kind of white liberalism and one of those practices or one of those kind of uh, tenets or aspects of white liberalism being um, a, a devaluation of black and brown people's expertise on racism. And so just not enabling students to be part of that conversation um, I think ties in there. And I just wanted to comment on that really quickly before answering your actual question. Um, but I think there are so many ways as teachers, we, we talk about having a student-centered culture, but if we were really to reflect on what that student-centeredness meant, if we were really to think about the, the four things I typically ask is, do your students have an opportunity to decide what they learn, so the content, um, when they learn, where they learn, and how they learn. 
if we can't enable students to have voice and choice in those things, and of course, sometimes, you know, that's, that's us kind of providing some choices and they choose from that. But other times, and listeners probably will, will recognize this particular anecdote that one time I tried an entire semester, an entire, like, you know, five months of school of students designing their own units. I had 80 different units going at the same time and just kind of following that path of a personally designed unit that brought them joy, that fed into their creative spirit, that enabled them to follow their curiosity. I think that is kind of that radical end of what that might look like. But, you know, if we are truly committed to engaging in this radical collegiality with students, it's going to be a co-construction of what and how we learn. And a lot of times as teachers, we are told in grad school when we're getting our teacher's degree, you must have 100% of students quietly, obediently listening to you and following directions. That's what makes a good teacher. When in fact, <laughs> that does not make a good teacher. That's going to isolate a lot of students. That's going to send a lot of students to the principal's office when there's this disobedience of weird rules that we think we have to institute. But that student voice really comes to life when we use practices like circle, which was really common for me. And I, and I know some people have been taking that to the virtual space where we pose a question about something relevant to students' lives. So for example, we just did this in um, my college class, but I've done similar things with my high school students around the decision coming in of the Breonna Taylor murder. And so having students have an opportunity, each one of them to answer and to just have everyone listen to students' answers, um, particularly when those students are um, kind of seeing their own experiences reflected back at them in current events. Like that's what radical collegiality is. It's not coming in with a pre-made lesson plan and telling students what they need to believe. It's honoring their experiences and their expertise. Um, so I know that's just one example, but I wanted to, to share that anecdote. So, wow, as I, so there's all kinds of things just running through my mind as I'm, I'm listening to, you know, because you're saying, um, you know, that, that last example of, of the circle experience where those voices that are typical, well, everybody gets a voice, right? So then they're, they're sharing um, their, their experiences. So then that, that's, that leads to, you know, vulnerability, you know, one of the discourse capacities. Um, but it also just keeps, it keeps me connected to what you said earlier about First, you've got this, this power dynamic between, you know, teacher and student, and then you've got the other power dynamic of, of race, right? Um, and so, you know, it, it just speaks to the complexity of how, how all this stuff works together to maintain structures. And so what you're asking for, I think the word radical is like <laughs> on point because it's truly radical. And, and what then do organizations, schools need for their, for their teachers to be able to come into a radical space, you know, <laughs> mentally, right? And to create these, these spaces where this can happen. Because um, I, 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 as I listen to you talk about how you, you did this for a semester, you know, you, you, <laughs> you did the student voice, you know, and, and you, you said, hey, how would you learn? What to show me what you what what you would do, and and you stayed with it, right? So what what did it take for you to stay engaged? What did it take for you to really 
you know, not lose sight of what you were trying to do. I wondered, like, does that take you to your why? How, you know, can you talk to that experience just a little bit? Because we underestimate, um, well, one, we, we, we overestimate what's involved, but then we also under, underestimate it, right? That takes a lot of, of work, physical work, right? Um, administrative work, but it also takes this work of, of the shift in the mindset, right? We're talking about the ways that we have been trained, teachers are trained to come in and, you know, and you have this information and you give it to people, right? You don't, you're not trying to hear anything. So can you speak to that experience of what, what did you, what happened in those times? Like, how did you hold on and, and just share with the audience, like, here's some things that are real and here's how I dealt with them. Absolutely. So full transparency, I will not do what I did again. <laughs> <laughs> because it was just too long. And the reason I knew that was because students told me. So I think a huge piece of this is those feedback loops of asking the students, checking in with them, how is this going? And the biggest piece of feedback I got from them was, this was an amazing project. However, I, I would prefer it to be shorter because they even said they were losing steam just themselves trying to orchestrate and follow this complex unit that they developed, even though it was, you know, their passion project, their interests, they were just like, I, I really wanted it to be done sooner. <laughs> it was a, a hefty length of time. And so parsing out all of the student feedback at the end was really valuable to me. What it taught me was not to throw away the project as a whole, but just to make some adaptations. Um, another piece that I think is really helpful is that I did not do this by myself. There were 80 different topics, many of which I had no idea about. Like some of, one of them was stand-up comedy. I am not a stand-up comic. I am not a particularly funny person, but I do know other people who are really interested in comedy in the school or, you know, personally connections. And so what I did was I tried, I think I got about 50 or 60 uh, students to be connected with people either in the school or connections that teachers in our school had to outside sources that were experts in those fields. And so they became like the content mentors. So I think the first thing was realizing I didn't have to do it alone <laughs> was huge. And so when we talk about shared leadership and student voice and co-constructing curriculum, we're also talking about how do we leverage family members that are experts. One of the uh, students actually went to her uncle because he was an expert in the topic that she was exploring. And so her uncle got to be her teacher, which is so cool because a lot of times we invalidate the expertise that family members have. And we say, we are the teachers who know how to do school. Um, I think that was a huge uh, realization for me. And I think another thing that supported me was an administrator who was like, go for it, who said, I will support you. I will show up to the final expo where the, the students are sharing what they did and I will celebrate that win. And I'm gonna come in occasionally, but I'm not going to say if students are you know, being very loud, that that's something you're gonna get penalized for. I'm gonna see that loudness as excitement and energy and things that we typically don't associate with loudness when we're looking in a school. And that's often what it was. It wasn't off-task loudness. The students were more focused than ever, and they were just really excited to, to dig into the work. So I think that admin support was really helpful, and specifically within that admin support, and for me, too, to, to kind of realize what was going right and what I would change is 
changing the measurement. Like, what am I actually measuring? So instead of measuring student obedience, for example, or discipline rates or something like that about following directions, I instead was measuring you know, for example, how excited students felt on a day-to-day -day basis, how valued or heard they felt in the, the class itself, um, you know, different pieces like that that are student-reported metrics that we typically don't measure in classrooms was what kept me on track, was what kept me energized, and what was also something that my admin valued, and I knew that. And so I think being able to be in that space that was really set up for me to do an experiment like this was was really what made it possible. Thanks, Lindsay. So, <laughs> excuse me, I think your, your example is like a perfect um, example for adaptive leadership, right? Combined with shared leadership, right? Because you, you had this project, you engaged the students, shared, um, and, and then you listen to them, right? You've got that feedback loop, and you have to have that, right? So, so uh, adaptive leadership talks about that. Um, they talk about not, like you saw, talked about not throwing away the entire project when you realize, oh my gosh, this is too much. You took what you learned from it, right? And you narrowed it down and you made adjustments. And, and this was because you didn't have um, structures in place. You didn't have practices in place that were there to, um, to help guide you through this truly adaptive leadership, right? Adaptive, uh, adaptive practice, I mean, is, is that practice that there's, there's no rule book for it, right? There's, there's no policy book that says this is how you do it, right? So you went in blindly. Another piece of, uh, that, that you talked about is that, um, that support, that organizational support, right? So when we're talking about um, changing organizations and, and helping them understand how racism is impacting, you know, all of, all of everybody, um, and, and get in, and embedded in their practices and policies because it's just part of our system. Um, that this 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 notion of having the support of the organization is critically important because if 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 you don't have that, if you didn't have that in your experience, and I know yours was not specific to race, I believe it wasn't, but but, but the, I mean, there's, there's great lessons, right? And so having that support is it, it allowed for you to really. Um, to, to really live into your potential so that you could bring your students into, into their potential, right? So it's got all these benefits. Um, and so then it's, it's this process of, of practice, of reflection, you know, praxis um, that is absolutely essential to, um, to con the continuation of, of racial justice and sustaining it over time. Thank you for summarizing that, Sheree. That just feels really nice to hear how that was connected to adaptive leadership. That's not something I would have immediately thought about. So thank you. Is there anything else that you wanted to add to this conversation before we go through a quick summary of, of key points here? Um, no, but I, I do want to say that these are the kind of conversations that just generate so much energy, right? You have all these ideas that, that, come together between two people. And so I wonder what it would be like if you had another person with a different perspective, right? Who could bring some other insights uh, to, to how we're looking at things. I just, you know, that, that's, that's a dream that I have is, you know, expanding um, the, the, the possibilities by bringing in different perspectives. So that's all I would say, thanks. Awesome, thank you. I, I'm just gonna go through a quick summary of some key points that we talked about and then we'll do a closing call to action. 
And so we talked a lot about shifting mindsets as a prerequisite for this work and, and policy change and specifically radical collegiality when we're talking about students, but also with families um, and seeing them as true partners in the learning. These things take time. So in that time, as Cherie said, right, the power of discourse, you're always engaging um, in, in this. And so of course it will take time, but we're constantly doing that work. We're constantly laboring for racial justice on this path um, as we kind of co-construct policy and things in a shared leadership setting. The need for self-care and collective care, which brings me back to you know Audre Lorde's like, initial calls for it, right? It was self-care as a, and I think she says, an act of political warfare, right? It is about um, caring for the self so that we can, as you said, Sheree, support the collective, right? It's, it's self-care for collective care. We're not turning away. We're turning inward for a moment, recharging and com coming back together. And so that shared leadership enabling us to share the weight uh, and building relationships with another and generating energy is a critical piece here. Um, using that combination of data matrix pyramid levels to properly diagnose and really systematize the process of diagnosis, um, as well as dismantle and actually act on the information we're getting in things like surveys to dismantle barriers to racial justice is critical. Um, tying the accountability to the organization's why is really how we sustain the labor through fatigue, which will happen, um, and really making sure that we're getting support uh, from folks who've studied and are knowledgeable about how racism operates when we're talking about accountability. We can't just be accountable to ourselves in just kind of our limited mindset of what accountability means, but we're pulling in experts to help us be accountable uh, to our larger community. Um, and finally, just listening to students, measuring what matters, and remembering that adaptive practice does not have a rule book. And uh, that praxis, that reflection and action is really what get us through those adaptive challenges, of course, with organizational support, which is, is really a huge key there. And so as we talk to leaders, as we invite them to take action after this particular episode, what would you say, Sheree, is something that you would um, encourage leaders to do after listening today? Well, I, I think I'm probably going to sound repetitive here. Um, so from an adaptive leadership lens, that parallel process of examining oneself, you know, that inner inner glance and inner look view. Um, and um, while doing that at the same time, um, examining the system, right? So you've got that parallel process going on, particularly in the context of, of addressing racial dominance in the workplace, right? So this interior journey is really important to be able to navigate through um, the, the external organization, right? And the internal part of oneself um, and so I, I recommended this the other day uh, or on the other podcast, but I, I still think it's very relevant, right? Um, is that if we, if some of the things that we can do right away, you know, a lot of times people think that there uh, is something grand that has to be done, right? Uh, but if we're talking about changing mindsets, that means you have to get engaged with your mind, right? You have to know how it's operating. And so in order to do that, spending just three minutes a day right, and observing, like as a, just a third party, right, you're observing what's going on so you can become familiar. Um, you can make it as easy as what's happening in this interaction with this person. What's going on with my body? What, what am I feeling? What am I noticing? Right, this is bringing in that somatic aspect of it, but a big piece of, of how we continue to disengage 
um, from, from conversations around race. And so it's just bringing some attention to how we're functioning as individuals within an organization, which makes us this, you know, the collective police. How are we, how are we uh, working together? And then, you know, you can take that data and apply it to, well, how does it impact, you know, uh, our practices, right? Because I, I, when we can begin to explore those things and become familiar with them, I think we can, that, that can take us a long way. So that's one thing. Excellent. Thanks, Sheree. And I actually wanted to say, too, by the time this episode airs, um, there will be a previous episode that I actually created a freebie for that is a daily journal for 30 days. And so you can use that journal to do exactly what Sheree's saying, where you're journaling for three minutes about that critical reflection. And again, bringing in uh, other other folks and other resources that we kind of talked about in our previous episode as well um, to kind of deepen your, your critical self-reflection there. So thank you for bringing that up again. I'm glad you did. <laughs> and then for me, I would say that, um, you know, I was actually inspired by what, what Cherie said earlier. I would actually recommend that you find someone to talk to like Cherie and I do. We have a standing weekly meeting and we just kind of, brainstorm really amazing things have come out of it I think and so we are doing a lot of professional work together but it's also I think just the ideas that flow when you have someone to talk to and think through some of you know the adaptive leadership work with so I think that's something that you can potentially do um, another thing if you're interested in kind of the student voice uh, element and, and trying to seek out students ideas and perceptions of their leadership opportunities in your school is that you can use my statistically val validated student leadership capacity building survey. So I'm gonna link that as the freebie for this episode, just so you can start to kind of collect some data around whether or not students actually feel like they do have an opportunity to lead in schools and in what ways do they have you know, an opportunity to make decisions at the school level, at the curriculum level, in, in their classes? Um, do they have the professional development for themselves as leaders where they're building those personal dialogic capacities that Sheree talked about in our in our former episode. Um, so these are some of the things that we might want to know about students and I will link to that in the show notes. Uh, so thank you all for listening to another episode. There was so much in here. Please let us know what you got from this. We have a Time for Teachership Facebook group if you want to go in there and chat with your takeaways and we will see you next week. Thanks for listening, amazing educators. If you loved this episode, you can share it on social media and tag me at Lindsay Beth Alliance or leave a review of the show so leaders like you will be more likely to find it. To continue the conversation, you can head over to our Time for Teachership Facebook group and join our community of educational visionaries. Until next time, leaders, continue to think big, act brave, and be your best self. Mm -hmm.